Welcome to the QI Chat Room. I'm your host, Max Perret. This podcast is brought to you by the Redwood Community Health Coalition, or RCHC for short. We are a network of community health centers in a wellness education nonprofit across Marin, Sonoma, Napa, and Yolo counties in California. We formed in 1994 with a mission to improve access to and the quality of care provided for uninsured and underserved people. We've been hosting these podcasts since the fall of 2019, and we hope you join us as we share the latest in health topics. Welcome, everyone. Uh, Very excited for this podcast today. Today, our guest host is Arlene Pena, and I'll turn it over to Arlene to introduce our guest. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Max. Today's episode features Dr. Mohamed Jalou, who is a doctor of pharmacy and a board-certified pharmacotherapy specialist. He is an assistant professor of the Department of Clinical Pharmacy at Tarot University, California, College of Pharmacy. He is also an ambulatory care specialist at Olay Health's pharmacy residency program and author of the children's book, Andres Armour. Today, we will be taking a closer look at the role of race in medicine and the impact of race corrections in the use of clinical algorithms. This presentation is inspired by the New England Journal of Medicine article, Hidden in Plain Sight, Reconsidering the Use of Race Correction in Clinical Algorithms. And uh, Dr. Jalo, we are so excited to have you here today, and I will hand it over to you. Thank you for that warm introduction. So today, we're going to really speak about how race is integrated in a lot of clinical tools and see how this actually could affect drug dosing, access to medications, and even we've seen a little bit where this influences vaccinations. Thank you again uh, for the introduction. I want to ask everyone how we always talk about health disparities, health disparities. I wonder if people really understand like how much of an impact this likely has on our economy. So what we've seen from the data is that health disparities, unfortunately, result in over billions of excess waste, unfortunately, because people who are not receiving the care they should be, unfortunately, come back to the hospital or come back to the clinic. And this is something that's not pretty good for us. Now, one thing we've learned is that the health disparities, while some people say, hey, it doesn't have anything to do with race, it has to do with economic stability, neighboring and physical environment, education, etc. And yes, these are all valid factors that contribute to health disparities. But unfortunately, race actually plays a big part in a lot of these things. And unfortunately, when you have an issue with all of these, this unfortunately results in people not having a good health and well-being meaning people have a higher mortality, worse morbidity, lower life expectancy. And I'll be frank, if you talk to me in the medical field and ask, hey, are we being, you know, doing, are we integrating race too much into our clinical decision-making? A lot of us will say, oh, no, I don't use race. I'm not racist, or I try to avoid using race to influence my decisions. So let's explore that a little bit, the history of race itself. Race was something that we created as an attempt to like help categorize people primarily by their physical differences. So I'm pretty sure when you see me, uh, when you see one of the key things you'll see is my skin tone, as well as my hair texture, my facial features, and my eye formation. And I would say these are things that make it easy for you to characterize what race I would identify with. And because of that, it was an easy category uh, system. They were able to make essentially five main races, and we use that to help identify and categorize people. 
In addition to races, we also use ethnicities as well, such as Latino or Hispanic origin, to make it easy to categorize. And you would think, oh, that's an objective way, and it makes sense we use this in medicine. But here's an interesting thing. When we look back at the history about race, uh, we've seen that race doesn't really have a history, per se, or have like an absolute meaning or absolute definition. Um, You know, in medicine, it's easy for us to maybe define maybe someone's blood sugar values by using an absolute marker. However, with race, we haven't really seen that. So here's an example. We're back in the like 17th all the way up to the 20th century. uh, When we used race, we used arbitrary rules that defined people by certain race. And it was related to whether someone had a specific linguistic background, a religious background, an ethnic background. For example, at the time, people who were Arabic were considered of the Arabic race, or people who identified as Jewish were identified as of being part of the Jewish race, etc. Even down to the group of the French, they were saying, oh, they were the French race. Now we look back and we say, oh, that doesn't make any sense. And yes, it doesn't. But the reality is, is based upon definitions, people said, oh, it made sense. Let's, um, we think they belong to this group, so we'll just identify them as that race. But interestingly, when I was investigating this, we learned that race really is more of a social and a cultural construct, and there's really not that much biology that influences it. And when you think about it, you said, oh, that doesn't make sense, because when you look at our physical features, it's pretty easy to say we physically look alike. But surprisingly, it's more of a social and cultural construct, and there's not that much of a biology behind it. So what we've learned is genetics is actually one of the best ways to evaluate how comparable people are. And what we've seen when we looked at race and compared it with genetics in studies, race is actually a poor proxy, actually, a very poor proxy for genetic ancestry. And what we found when we looked at genetic studies is that there's actually more variation between people intraracially, meaning people who belong to the same race, versus interracially. And this is something that just wouldn't make sense. You'd be like, no, if I identify as African-American, if I see someone who's African-American, I would say, oh, genetically, we're probably more related. But research has shown that's not the case. This stems from this study back from 2002 in which uh, they did this good study where they were able to map majority of the human genome. And they were able to show that we share majority of genes between all of us. And there's not as much variety between all of us. So let's see the example that they provided that was pretty remarkable. When we look at it, physically, race is not even an effective way to show how comparable people are, but yet we use race a lot in medicine. And what we've seen is race has been used in a lot of clinical algorithms, score tools, and even guidelines to help guide care. But now when we look back at it, genetically, we've seen that race really doesn't have a good indicator about how genetically similar people are comparable. So this actually could be misleading. So as a pharmacist, I said, okay, well, let me look at what score tool could likely influence drug therapy the most. And that's why I said, all right, let's take a look. Let's explore this a little bit. Let's explore looking at the kidney function calculators to see how, if we have a certain race, how would that influence care to a degree? So we all probably are aware of the kidney function calculators. Typically, the most common one is creatinine clearance or the EGFR. And what do you guys notice when you look at the screen, when you see the MDRD or the CKD EPI equation, or the GFR calculation? What do you typically see as something that we account for besides CM creatinine and besides age? Race. Race, correct. Good job. We look gender. at race. race and gender. That is good. So we see we account for gender and we account for race. 
And what we've seen in races that we see specifically for some of these equations, they say, hey, if someone identifies with African ancestry, we have to account for that by multiplying the value by a certain amount. So then let's explore that. So why would we do that? When they were coming up with these equations, they said that they were able to extrapolate them by infusing a chemical in people's bodies at the time. And they were able to measure the true GFR and they were able to quantify the clearance in the group of people that they had together. And what they noticed is that when they had their little cohort where they did this study to extrapolate the equation, they found that people who were of the black race had a slightly higher GFR value or glomerular filtration rate value, despite having the same creatinine level. So what they did mathematically, they said that makes sense. We had a couple of people who had higher values. So they'll say, okay, let's account for that so we can make it a little bit standard across the, the line. Now, the reality was, is when they did that, there was only a few who had that. It wasn't every African-American, and they didn't do a, a proper statistical analysis to verify that. So that was really interesting, but they went with it. And this is what the hypothesis was. Well, they said, oh, well, maybe the reason why they even seen maybe even slightly higher CM creatinine concentrations was because there was a proxy saying that African-Americans are historically known for having higher muscle mass. And that was their hypothesis, and they went with that. And because of that, that was accepted. I can attest when I was a pharmacy student and I was taught about these creatinine clearance or type of kidney function calculators, and we were taught about, hey, we have to account for race. I remember professors just said, hey, well, because they're African-American, they're more known to have more muscle mass. And instinctively, when I heard that, I never felt offended by it. I, unfortunately, I felt almost proud. It's like, oh, we got more muscle. Oh, that's cool. When in reality, that was not actually based upon valid information. That wasn't based on any randomized controlled trial data or even on consistent cohort data. It was an assumption. And because of that, that's what's been integrated into our clinical practice. So what could happen because of this? Just by the EGFR itself, four key things I've seen after researching this could happen to patients. Number one, patients can be withheld, medications can be withheld because of the EGFR. Number two, people can have a higher threshold for kidney referral. This could result in people being excluded from clinical trials that have specific criteria, and this could even reduce your access to a kidney transplant. So let's do an example, just so you guys have an idea. So remember, the EGFR was on that basis about saying that African-Americans have a higher muscle mass. So when you guys look at these pictures, instinctively, when you look at the pictures, who do you guys think would be considered to have the higher muscle mass between the two? The gentleman on the left or the gentleman on the right? Gentleman on the left. For reference, the gentleman on the left is a very muscular Caucasian male, and the gentleman on the right is a lean African-American male. We can see, yeah, the gentleman on the left has a little bit more muscle mass, but because he identifies as Caucasian, when we calculate his EGFR, his EGFR comes up at a 93, and in the uh, person who's on the right, African-American, he does have his muscle mass. But again, the equation that we use accounts saying that African-Americans have more muscle mass. So in this case, they're assuming that, and his creatinine clearance is assumed to be a little bit higher. In this way, when you look at it, you may say, oh, that's fine. What's the problem? Well, now let's say, let's take it up a notch. So let's say we want to use this drug called Cervasa, also known as Adoxaban. We usually use it for patients who uh, have a risk for stroke because they have non-valvular atrial fibrillation. And it's a very um, easy medication to take. Now, here's the interesting thing. We should not use this in patients who have a creatinine clearance greater than 95. 
or in an EGFR and what people would say would be greater than 95. Based upon that, who would get this medication and who would not get this medication? And as you can see, based upon this, the African-American child would not get this medication and the person on the left would get it just simply because he was identifying as African-American, even though he doesn't have higher muscle mass than the other gentleman as well. This is a like maybe rare example or extreme example, but this is an example where you could say, hey, people will have the medications withheld due to EGFR. Now, besides that, here's another example of what we could see just by simply identifying as a certain race. When you look at this score, uh, these patients, we see the, the person on the left identifies Caucasian. Now the person on the right identifies as biracial. Instinctively, when you see her, when you look at her phenotype, her physical sense, you would think she would identify as black. She'd maybe come off as the complexion of like the President Obama. So I would say, oh, maybe the person's African-American. So based upon that, if we do that and we use that to incorporate the calculations, we would see on the left, the person would have a EGFR as um, 28, and then the person on the right will have an EGFR 33. So when you look at those numbers, you'll say, oh, they're pretty similar. We don't have to worry about that. Now, here's the interesting thing. The main authority regarding kidney health says we have a nephrology referral is recommended if the EGFR is less than 30. Now, based upon this, if they have the same creatinine clearance or serum creatinine, the same age, the same gender, but because one identifies as black, their value is a little bit higher, and then one who identifies as Caucasian is a little bit lower, between the two, who would likely get referred just based upon the numbers themselves, even though we're trying to be objective? The woman on the left. Yep, the woman on the left, exactly. So here's like an example where even though they would have the same uh, gender, same age, same serum creatinine, but because one identifies as a different racial group than another, that will make it that they'll be less likely to be referred. And this is, again, if someone's going doing patient intake, I could see that someone would instinctively see her and say, oh, you probably are African-American. If someone says, oh, I'm biracial, instinctively they'll say, oh, he or she is African-American. So you can see that simple change could refer, actually change someone's entire course of treatment. That nephrology referral can maybe hopefully make sure that they have access to certain medications, access to certain services. And it could be that simple thing that could all cause almost like a trigger of events itself. And this is an example, higher threshold for kidney referral. So these are examples of what could happen just by simply identifying it, by using these calculating tools where they do that race correction. So then a lot of people in the community, you know, like to point fingers saying, hey, they're doing this in the clinical score tools. They're doing this. They're doing that. And a lot of people like to complain. Um, but for me, I like to be very solutions oriented. I like to give examples of what could we do to actually mitigate this. I think at the clinician level, like me and other healthcare providers, I would say if there's any alternative or more credible tools, I would say let's use them. Here's an example where they actually went with that. What other people have seen is they said, okay, yeah, we account for race. And we said, well, why don't we remove race correction and see how does that affect people's maybe category of disease. And what they seen is when they did this cross-sectional study of over 56,000 patients and they recalculated the EGFR and removed race from it, they found over 33% of the African-American or black patients would now be reclassified into a more severe CKD stage. And this would result in them needing, of course, more intensive care. Now, the reality is if this didn't happen, a lot of those patients will probably say, oh, we don't have to worry about it as much. 
then here was the other thing that was interesting. When they did that same study, they found now 64 black patients, just simply removing that correction itself, would now qualify for a kidney transplant, just simply based upon that simple number. Now, you may think 64 patients may not be a lot, but if you know anyone who's gone through um, dialysis and they need that kidney transplant, every day matters. Every day they go to the dialysis machine and they, they're there for hours doing that, you can believe that they are frustrated being there. 64 people itself, just simply based upon removing that race correction. Based upon this study, there was actually a task force where they said, okay, well, let's reassess how do we include race in diagnosing kidney diseases. And now the task force itself recommended let's using updated EGFR calculators that removed race corrections. And luckily, we actually have a few of them now. And major institutions like Beth Israel, MassGen have actually removed race correction in all their EGFR calculators. I'll be frank, as a patient in the Bay Area, I've actually seen that we do still use EGFR. And not only do we still use EGFR that incorporates race, we see both values incorporated in like panels that we order still. So this is an example of what we could do not only at the clinical level, but also at the level of institutions as well. So this is something that they're doing. And as you can see, here's like an updated equation that they use that calculates EGFR, but it does not include race. So then the other thing is, let's say you, uh, as a clinician, have a score tool, and this is maybe the only score tool we can use for evaluating disease or maybe a medications. Then I would say if they absolutely need to incorporate race in it, meaning this is the only score tool, then I'm going to ask myself, well, how should I look at race now? So here's what I would do. If we have a tool that incorporates race, I would ask myself if this person maybe identifies as African-American or black, and I put that in the race score tool, would that race correction result in the change of the disease risk category? I'll ask myself that. Or let's say, would that race correction result in the change in medication dosing? Or would that race correction result in maybe a contraindication of medication like we've seen with that previous case? And I would say, if you answer yes to one of these, then I would say, all right, maybe let's see how we can remove race and see how we can try to provide the best care to that patient and say, what can we do to make sure that they receive their appropriate risk category? What can we do to make sure they receive the appropriate medication dosing and hopefully receive the medication itself? So those are things I would say at a clinician level we can do. And I've tried practicing this and actually been pretty simple by just taking an extra step to look up that extra clinical score tool. Or if I have a score tool that I use race, I just ask myself these three questions and it only takes me like five minutes. Then the other thing is I know clinicians are held accountable to protocols. So one thing that maybe health systems can do is you avoid protocols or avoid having policies that only include those score tools for evaluating things. For example, I know in some health systems, they like to say, all right, well, we want to track EGFR using the um, score tool we used previously. This would be a great example of saying, okay, instead of using that in the policy, saying we have to abide by that, why don't we use maybe the other score tool that doesn't utilize race, for example. The other thing we can do at the university level or even residency level is consider really teaching about the derivation studies of these uh, score tools, especially if they have race included as well as improving pharmacogenomic test, uh, teaching specifically. And at the quality assurance level is maybe we need to work on how do we create measures that evaluate health inequity, especially if they're racial based. And maybe when we are at the quality assurance organization level, avoid only using tools to evaluate the quality of health systems 
that use race, for example, especially if there's other ones that are available. Now, going back to the university level, I can tell you, again, when I was a student, we were just told, hey, when we calculate creatinine clearance or certain things, we account for race again. The reason why is because African-Americans are more likely to have more muscle mass. And this is where I would really encourage us professors to really look at that and see, okay, well, can we actually explain that and, and see what is that derived from? So something I've done with my students is let's say we have a disease state where they'll say, oh, a risk factor is um, maybe being Hispanic or African-American. What I've done is actually look through the data and I'll try to evaluate, is it based upon socioeconomic stuff or is it actually a biological basis? The majority of times it's maybe most likely socioeconomic. But then I would say, let's focus on pharmacogenomic teaching. So what is that? Our genes themselves really influence how we respond to medications. So we really want to make sure we're providing personalized care and where we would think we're doing a good job with race. Let's actually look at pharmacogenomics, where our genes really influence how our, the drugs are targeted in our body, how the drugs are transported, and even how the drugs are metabolized. So if we really want to focus and say we want to provide the best care based upon someone's group they identify with, this is what we should be teaching more of. Uh, pharmacogenomics, because this is what is more important for people to really understand. And then in the case, let's say we are going to teach about it, you can ask yourself these questions. Hey, is there any genotype associated with the racial group that's related to the medication? A common example is drugs like warfarin. Warfarin, it, when it's processed in the body, that process can be changed depending on if you have certain genes in your body or lack of genes. And we've associated with the lack of certain genes with certain racial groups. So it makes sense that we'll maybe evaluate that in that racial group. But if there is none, probably don't need to worry about it. And then if there is any concept of like a genotype or an issue regarding that, we should see, is there any evidence supporting that? So instead of just accepting it as a status quo of, I gave the example for African-Americans, instead of saying, oh, African-Americans have more muscle mass, that's why we account for the serum creatinine or we account for the creatinine clearance. Let's ask ourselves, well, is there any data validating that? And when I mean data, is there any robust consistent data that validates it. So these are questions I would ask myself at the, even at when I'm teaching my students as well as when I'm working at the residency level. Now going on to race correction during the pandemic, I wanna ask all of you, how do you think race has really altered the course of the pandemic you suspect? That's really complicated, but I know we've seen huge disparities in numbers of cases, vaccination numbers, Exactly. You're correct. That is the biggest thing we've seen, that there is actually a big disparity in not only people who are getting sick, but actual vaccination numbers. And the data hasn't lied that, unfortunately, people who are African-American or, or identify as Hispanic actually have lower vaccination rates compared to people who identify as Caucasian. That's the hard reality. Now, as African-American, of course, I've been vaccinated and I encourage as many people to get vaccinated. But when I speak to some of my people who identify with me, a lot of them are saying, hey, well, I don't want to get vaccinated because of this experiment or that experiment. And hearing that hurts because it shows that people are still hurting. And because of that, people are still mistrustful, the uh, current healthcare system that we have. Uh, there was a great commentary that I found that was not regarding the COVID-19 vaccines, but really about um, the disparity of the influenza vaccination programs. It was actually pretty helpful. What they found as causes of some of these racial disparities was number one, lack of patient initiative, 
Uh, number two, lack of access. Three, lack of education. Four, unconscious provider uh, bias. And then five, risk aversion. People want to control what is entered in their body, and they feel that them getting a vaccine from someone that they don't feel comfortable with is a form of risk aversion. A lot of things have been recommended that have been actually shown to be effective is actually using community-based programs where we do a lot of tracking, recall, and outreach to people. Uh, Two, educational session interventions where you have people who maybe identify with certain racial groups going out and giving presentations in churches, at salons, or in the community. And then surprisingly, we actually have um, a little bit about using children's books. And that's why I wanted to introduce a children's book that I worked on. This is a, a children's book that I've actually been very proud of. It's a self-published rhyming children's book that uses funny analogies to explain how vaccines work. And I love it because it has representative character. And I can attest that representation matters. As a clinical pharmacist, when I was growing up, I did not see an African-American male at a, even a physician pharmacist, or even healthcare provider level, unfortunately. And where I grew up outside of Philadelphia, that was not common. And it would have been nice to see that to show that it's possible. So one thing in the book that we did is we wanted to make it inclusive. So we have a provider that looks like a patient that lets them know like, hey, that could be me one day. And when I gave this to some of my patients and their children, um, here was like some feedback when they learned how vaccines work using the colorful analogies. A lot of parents was like, oh, wait, that's all it, it is to it? Hey, maybe I should get the vaccine then. And that's actually a quote from one of the patients. One of the kids, after the mom read the book to the child, said, oh, mommy, I want to get the armor too. And this simple change, you'd be surprised, it's just simple changes, having a person look like them, explain how vaccines work using a funny analogy was all that it took for a child to feel more relaxed to get the vaccine. So something I'm pretty proud of. And I'll let you know, it's not something that I'm just saying, oh, it works or I think it works because I have a few patients who did it. We actually have some studies that show that do, using children's books, especially children's health books, actually does work. And what they found was that in this study that they listed above, that there was a positive correlation with uh, mothers and children having access to certain health books and children's health books and making sure that they completed their basic immunization. So, you know, in California, we have, um, I think, before students go into school, I believe they have like four vaccines that they absolutely need to have. In other countries, they have something comparable. So what they found was when they gave them the, some of this like colorful analogies and using these books, it improved them having their basic immunization completed at the beginning. So for me, what I'm looking to do is hopefully, you know, partner with health systems, you know, partner with departments of health to hopefully improve vaccine hesitancy before the July 1st deadline. I believe I did some volunteer clinics at a couple of schools and a lot of the superintendents, they told us that I believe, I think July 1st is the deadline where we need to have everyone vaccinated before them to enter school. So that's what I'm looking to do because I just want to make sure that when we look back later this year at this pandemic, I want us to say, hey, we did everything we could to make sure we got everything and get as many people protected from the coronavirus. And I just don't want us to look back like we are doing now saying, oh, we should have done this. We should have done that. And that's what I'm hoping to do with this. In conclusion, um, again, race, we use it a lot in a lot of score tools. And what I've learned after looking at the biology about race and looking at the genetics that using race or incorporating them in score tools may actually not optimize care. And what I would say is if you're a clinician, maybe reconsider using some of these clinical tools and reconsider using maybe alternative tools that do not use race. For example, for EGFR, they actually have new clinical tools 
I think from 2021 that do not incorporate race and we've seen that they've been validated. So I would maybe use that instead of using the score tools that incorporate race. And that's what I would say at the organization level. Maybe we should adopt clinical tools that do not arbitrarily include race as a factor and maybe do an internal review and see how many tools actually use that and see, hey, are there other tools that are relevant and maybe use that to help evaluate the quality of care versus relying on those tools that do include race. And again, as well, in the context of vaccine hesitancy, though, as you can see, there's a great disparity in vaccine use as well as vaccine hesitancy in racial groups. And I would say organizations should continue using a lot of these innovative community-based activities to hopefully outreach to the patients who are at risk, who maybe feel uncomfortable. As a bonus for all of you, I, I'm an avid reader. I love Audible and I also love reading books. I would say these are the four best books I would recommend to maybe have a better understanding about how race and even unfortunately racism has influenced medical care in some cases. And which I think probably out of all of them, if I would say a good one to start off with, would be the medical apartheid because it gives a good overview. But then if you read about the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, you'll be astounded to see what has been done to people who identified as African-American. And her story is just truly remarkable. So these would be books I would recommend if you personally want to review about this so you have a better idea. I just want to say thank you again for giving me this opportunity to speak uh, to everyone. And with that, any uh, questions? Uh, any of you may have. Dr. Jillo, just thank you so much for being with us today and leading us in this very important discussion and for inspiring us to continue this work um, and moving the needle in this area. So uh, just reading from the comments in the chat, I'll just share that everyone's just providing wonderful feedback about your book. So I guess with this, I just want to open it up to our live audience. Does anyone have any additional questions for Dr. Jillo, whether it's on clinical algorithms or vaccinations, um, any of the topics that were discussed today? Thank you so much for speaking. I am, I guess I'm wondering if there's really, you sort of mentioned, you know, for GFR, you could look and see through our lab, it comes up for race. And I guess I'm wondering why I pay attention to it at all, <laughs> right? If it really doesn't have a basis, solid basis in science, then is there any drawback to just ignoring it? Good question. I think, and that's why I gave the example, if there would be a drawback, I could see that if someone identifies as African-American instinctively, they would see EGFR that would correspond with them. And then I gave the example of, oh, if they were to identify as that, that could result in them maybe having a different category in the disease state. So the example I gave was with the two women where they had the same creatinine and the same age, that would result in them having different course of therapy where one of them would get a nephrology referral versus the other one would not instinctively, just based upon that. I understand maybe you, you probably would have that critical thinking to look at those and maybe discern, oh, we should probably refer this patient or EGFR is close enough. But I know some other providers may say, all right, well, the number says this. And because of that, that's what I'm going to go off of. And I think that's where the question is, should we even account for race? I think we should just be mindful that race is influence, could influence our course of therapy. And I hope that if you feel that it could influence your course of therapy, that's when you have to be a little bit more critical versus just maybe saying, oh, we don't have to worry about it. Great. Thank you for that, Dr. Jalo. And it looks like we have a question from Pamela Moore in the oh, yeah. live audience. Good morning, and thank you for that presentation. My question is, do you have any ideas about how patients of color, particularly African-American or Black patients, can better advocate for their health 
I'm thinking about the example that you used about the creatinine. And since many people might be on high blood pressure medications and so forth where that is regularly monitored, how do you know your provider is using the right test? How can you ask? Who can you talk to? Any thoughts about how we might encourage people to advocate on their own behalf? Great question. I can give you a story. I personally have felt the effects of how you're perceived actually could change how the course of therapy. And I can be very frank, I'm not going to give the health system per se, but I remember when I was feeling a certain disease, I was feeling these symptoms. And it, when I'm on the weekend, I'm just very casual, wearing basketball shorts, sneakers, etc. You would not think I'm a professor. And I remember when I was had certain symptoms and I went and advocated and said, hey, I think I have these symptoms. Um, I'm not feeling well. I remember a lot of my symptoms were actually dismissed. They were dismissed and even said, oh, no, we don't, it's, this is what it is. And then, of course, when they gave me the course of treatment, I thought, hey, they know what they're talking about. Then I seen the treatment wasn't working. So I said, okay, let me go back. Same, going in casually, going in and not letting them know who I was. And again, I was getting treated a little bit different where they were being very dismissive. And then the third time, I remember when I went again, I spoke to an MA who identified as the same group as I did, and they, I told them, hey, yo, this is my third time coming. What's go, what do you think is going on? And she made it clear. She said, hey, it's, she pointed to her skin. She said, you know, it's because of this. That's why you're getting treated this way. And then the third time, again, it happened. So then I'm like, okay, they're not, I don't think they're really taking me seriously. So you know what I did? I came back with my full badge, fully dressed, and, and I introduced myself, who I was. And I said, hey, uh, just so you know, I'm a clinical professor. I'm a clinical pharmacist. I practice here. Here's been my course of treatment. I don't think this is the appropriate course. And you'd be surprised when they found out who I was, the dynamics completely changed. And when that happened, that's when we actually were able to find out the absolute correct diagnosis, where I actually have even come up with the idea myself and say, hey, I think we need to test for this. We need to test for this, this, and that. And they were not expecting me to know even the specific lab values. And when it came back that the diagnosis was correct based upon objective information, you'd be surprised how everyone was all of a sudden changing the way they interact. To give an example, I think the reality is what I've learned is when you're going to the clinic, I think people need to realize that at the clinical level, we need to be wary of who you're treating because you never know who you're treating. You never know who that person may be related to or may have a colleague with. And what I've learned that maybe people could do at the clinical level is truly listen to patients. And even if the patient has a request that you feel is maybe ridiculous, try to prove us wrong using clinical objective stuff. So instead of saying, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. Okay, all right, if you think it's this way, let's see if I can order this test that could verify that. And you'd be surprised by, if that would have been done initially, that could have saved so much stuff. I think that could be one thing that could be used to improve, hopefully. Clinicians could hopefully try to help the patient by using clinical values or clinical tests to prove, maybe, maybe prove the patient wrong and use it clinical stuff. From a patient level, I would say patients should probably have an idea of what questions they want to ask ahead of time. So they, if at the patient level, they should write down all the questions they have. And two, probably bring someone to advocate with them. I know there's some people who are not, have a lot of medical knowledge. So I would advocate that if they have maybe a friend or family member who is in the medical field, have them come with them to the visit. Because when I've seen that the dynamics has changed when you have someone there who can almost essentially hold you accountable. So those would be things I would recommend. Again, from the patient level, have your questions prepared. 
as well as number two, maybe bring someone who's a friend or family who's in the medical field. And then two, from the clinical level, though, if you're a provider, I would want you, if a patient says, oh, I, I don't know if it's this, I don't know if it's that, instead of dismissing them, try to prove them wrong and see by doing objective lab tests. And you'd be surprised that that could actually be more objective versus saying, oh, no, it's not that. I'm not even going to test for it. I apologize if that was a little bit long. No, thank you for that perspective and for that advice. So we have Colleen Townsend in uh, the audience who also has a question. And then Beth Dadka will go to you next. Hey, good morning. Great presentation. Thank you so much, Dr. Jillo. Um, I probably have more of a comment than a question, which is a nice dovetail to that discussion around patients advocating for themselves. I think this is a super challenging time. As medicine becomes more complicated and technical, I think it's hard to have the general public uh, be able to advocate for themselves. These are, these is, this is a place I think where family practice clinicians have a really great role, primary care, in terms of laying out for patients their own self-advocacy. So unfortunately, unfortunately and fortunately, it is a piece of work that primary care, and maybe not every primary care clinician, but I think there's a, a way that we need to educate generally our populations about what is appropriate treatment and what their options are to give them truly educated opportunities to make decisions around their own health care. But secondly, in the advocacy piece, as we learn this information, and, you know, these are huge systemic changes. So referring that patient, that African-American patient to a nephrologist when their GFR is 34, you know, depending upon where you work, like that's another piece of information that we need to work collaborating with our specialist colleagues to say, gosh, this patient's GFR because of the, the shift, because of the, the fact that she's African-American, gives her a GFR of 34, but really it's 30 or 29. So please consider, disconsider or unconsider the GFR uh, markup, if you will, um, when considering this patient. And, and then, you know, so we can do as primary care providers, we can make that referral. But then if our community clinicians aren't thinking in the same vein, as you sort of alluded to, like this may be happening in the mass gen Boston area, but if it hasn't hit the Bay area first, we need to be pretty pushy, dare I say, in how we talk with our specialists. Because, you know, when, when I looked at that New England Journal article um, or the JAMA article about, like, this has such big implications in treating heart disease and how people, and, you know, these are diseases that have huge impact on individuals' lives. And if we're having a hard time talking about it, it's going to be really hard for our patients who are vulnerable in many ways to be able to say, wait, 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 don't use that algorithm. I have chest pain. I can't breathe. <laughs> don't take that piece out of the algorithm in the moment. Um, I mean, we can definitely arm our patients with information to help them, but it's such a big, it's, it's a little bit of an uphill battle until some of these algorithms are just removed. Thanks. I don't, I'm not sure you can answer that big question. It's not so much <laughs> a question, just like uh, fodder for thought. Thanks so much. No, I, you're completely right. A lot of it's with our training. And that's why I even went into, I don't like the idea of just pointing the finger saying, hey, doctors or clinicians, you're in the clinic, you got to make the changes. I try to give recommendations at every level. And I even went down to the university and residency level, because at the university level, this is where we're training medical, nursing and pharmacy students. And even at the residency level, no matter what specialty you're doing, that's where you're going to be receiving training as well. That's why I said, hey, we should encourage this idea of integrating or being open to understanding of race at the clinical level, too, or at the residency or university level. So I agree with you. And that's why I'm working. We're going to be hopefully developing a health equity uh, elective at our university to help teach students this information. And we're also trying to reformat our curriculum. So we're being mindful of this as well to make sure we're doing it. So I agree with you. And I think it, you're right. We shouldn't just put it only on one provider. We actually need to work with 
providers at the specialty level as well. And we're hoping maybe if we can do CE activities that integrates this, this will be helpful just to at least maybe plant that seed that they should start considering that. Now, the reality, what I've learned, and maybe Dr. Thompson, you can attest too, usually what influences practice is what is maybe being accredited based on or what is being evaluated in the context of quality. For example, if I believe one outcome that we use is, oh, how many um, patients have diabetes or on a statin? That's an outcome that is used to evaluate the quality of care. And you can see because of that, people are leaning toward of using a statin in patients who have diabetes because that's a quality of care measure. When we incorporate that type of motivation at the health system level, instinctively, people are going to say, well, this is an outcome we have to be compliant to. Instinctively, they'll lean toward that. So I agree. I think educating is going to be very helpful. But also finding outcomes that hold people accountable to encourage them to do that is something that could be helpful too. Thank you very much. Our next question is coming from Beth Dadko. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm with Santa Rosa Community Health and part of our uh, quality team. And I love the concrete I- ideas of what we could actually do. <laughs> that is uh, very helpful. And I was just curious if you had developed kind of more a longer list of kind of some of these either tests that take in, you know, to account race that um, maybe we could be looking at, or you had said too that you're developing health equity, you know, sort of a, a list of things to consider. And I just, it would be really helpful to have just some concrete examples or, you know, kind of some steps that you recommended steps that we could take back to either leadership or our quality team and be thinking about. So it's just curious how extensively you've kind of thought about this. <laughs> yeah, it was something I'll be frank, I was not expecting to find this many clinical score tools. So there's actually a handful, I would say at least 20 different score tools that incorporate race in them already. And doing the research, there was a lot that were there. And then it was interesting to find out the studies that helped that were helped to derive them. Surprisingly, again, a lot of the studies, they just use arbitrary things saying, oh, African-Americans have this, African-Americans have that. That's why we incorporated it in the score tool. Um, so to first answer your question, yes, I have been researching this. And it's been that thing where the further you look into it, the more you find out about it. And you're like, wait, what? So there's, I would say, at least over 20 different score tools. Thank you. Thank you so much. Do we have any more questions from our audience? Yeah, the New England Journal, that's where it started off. They have like a big list and they go even down to, I think, down to urology where they have a UTI infection prediction tool where that one even incorporates it. So yeah, the New England Journal Medicine article has a good overview. But then after that, there's been so much more that was pretty surprising. And not just for the testing, but for medication, prescribing and all that, that it would be really, really great to have some concrete, like a concrete list. So thank you. Any other questions? Wonderful. And I just wanted to share that from my learnings, I saw that John Hopkins released last week a newsletter saying that they are dropping race correction in kidney function algorithms. So I think we're definitely making movements in the right direction. So I think it's so important to continue these conversations and then follow them with actions and, you know, advocate. And so thank you so much again for being here with us today, Dr. Dillo, to share this very important information. And thank you uh, to our live audience for engaging in this very important discussion. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. So thanks, everyone. Thank you again for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining the QI Chatroom podcast. We appreciate you, our listeners, for joining us today. 
If you have suggested future topics, please email m-p-e-r-r-e-y at rchc.net. And please follow us, the Redwood Community Health Coalition, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Goodbye for now. Till next time on the QI Chat Room.